Are you familiar with the saying, and I think I got it right, um, he's so heavily minded, he's of, o, of no earthly good, right? Is that, I think that's how it goes. Uh, it's meant to communicate essentially that if you live here on earth, uh, the best thing you can do is to care about your work, care about your job, care about your family, uh, not be all involved in religious stuff. That's going to mess everything up. Um, you should be about things below because after all, you live on earth, so you should be occupied with the things of earth. Today, I hope to destroy that sentence. I think that is an unhelpful sentence. I think it's wrong. I think it's unbiblical, and I think the Bible actually says the exact opposite. I think the Bible is very clear that the people who are most heavenly minded are actually of the most earthly good. Uh, it's kind of interesting how that works. Uh, the book of Colossians, chapter 3, says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. So it's very clear. Look to Jesus. Think about Jesus. Set your minds on him because you're with him, and he's your life. So the whole point of the Bible is that you're supposed to be doing that. And if you consider who Jesus was, we know that he was the most heavenly-minded man of all, right? Because he was the God-man. He thought about heaven and did the things of heaven more than anybody else. And he is the most earthly good, if you can even put that in a simple sentence. So a question that you should be asking yourself is this. When is the last time you have thought about heaven? Do you think about it often? I think maybe this will help you to um, reel in what I'm going for. Have you ever been away from home and you've become what we call homesick? Uh, it happens to me quite frequently uh, when we go on a trip. You kind of, I mean, unless we're going to the beach, I'm pretty much, I'm, I'm ready to stay. But just about anywhere else, after about day two or three, I miss my bed more than anything. I miss my feet on my carpet. I miss the smells of my house. I miss my room. I miss everything. I get homesick. I miss my chair. Every man, every man has a chair he misses. I miss my chair. This is especially true when you go to like another, like another country or another state. You just, I'm just ready to go home. There's no place like home. As Christians, we need to be reminded of the same thing, that earth is actually not our true home, that we, we should feel homesick. But sadly, our time on earth often feels very permanent. We forget that we are not meant to be here uh, very long, that we're just passing through. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 says this, But our, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are... Uh, we're called citizens of heaven, so we're just on visa here on the earth. We're just visiting. We're not supposed to be here very long. And in Psalm 84, I hope to give you four truths from this psalm that we need to reflect and to mirror so we can think about heaven more as I think we are called to be. So look at verses 1 through 2. First, we're going to show a, a longing for heaven. Verses 1 and 2, How lovely is your dwelling place, O loader o Lord of hosts, my soul longs. Yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. So the psalmist expresses an emotion of longing, right? Um, and probably words that we don't often ascribe to God. None of us probably very often, or maybe ever, talk about God as being lovely or beautiful even. I don't think we use that kind of language, but the psalmist does here, right? His heart is fixed on where God dwells, right? Namely, in the Old Testament, where did God dwell most? Most, most central, well, we know that would be uh, the, the tabernacle, right? The temple that... People would go to meet God with through the high priest. 
If you know much about the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 36, that's basically a whole chapter dedicated to how you're supposed to design uh, the tabernacle. It's very pretty. It has very bright colors like purple and gold and blue and supposed to be woven a certain way. And have, I mean, it's supposed to be just beautiful, and it is beautiful. That's the point, right? Perfect measurements, certain fabrics, um, certain colors, designs. I mean, it took a lot of work and supposed to be pretty. And indeed, the tabernacle is meant to reflect the beauty and the, the preciousness of God who dwells there, right? Psalm 50 says this. It says that God is called the perfection of beauty. The beautiful sentence, literally, that God is the perfect. He's the perfection of beauty, that his divinity, who he is as God, is excellent, right? All of God's godness is excellent. The loveliness of God, the, the beauty of God, knowing that he is what we call omnipotent, so he can do whatever he wants, right? God can't be stopped. Um, he can do whatever he wants when he wants. We know that God is um, omniscient. He knows everything. He sees through us like an x-ray, right? Um, God has sovereignty. He rules over the world. He knows all things. He's all wise. He's self-sufficient. He needs nothing, needs no one, never has, never will. He is life in himself. I mean, just think about who God is, and you think, wow, he's He's beautiful. I mean, he doesn't need, he's perfect, right? That's what beauty is. It's perfect, right? There's none like him. That's what his holiness means. And each time here in verses 1 and 2, when it talks about God, it always refers to, if you look, his dwelling place, or it says the courts of the Lord. So again, that's, that's reminding us that essentially what's most beautiful to the psalmist is not just the tabernacle, though that's true, but what he's most um, obsessed with and longing for is God himself, right? He's He's desiring God. His soul is drawn towards the Lord. And all of us, by nature, we are all attracted to beauty. And we all know that. We don't like ugly things. There's a reason why by nature, or by humanity, why we, um, we put scenic overlooks over mountains or over the woods. We don't put them over dump, dumpsters or trash heaps. We just don't do that. We don't. We love pretty music. Like, I mean, yeah, you might like ACDC. That's fine. But you like that more than some guy getting a drumstick and smacking a trash can repeatedly, right? Because that's just ugly. It's, just, it's not a good sound, right? We like, we like beauty. We like rhythm. We like, we're attracted to those things, right? We admire sweet things. We admire beauty. All of us do. That's why we have these things in the world. And the dwelling place, the courts of the Lord, are a personal, real interaction of, with God's glory. So if you want to know what the, what the loveliness of God truly is, we need to look to the person of Christ. If you're familiar with the book of John, chapter 1, you probably know this verse um, almost to heart. Chapter 1, verse 14, and it says this, And the Word, who is Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I don't know if you know this, but in the, in the original language, in the Greek, where it says he dwelt... Uh, the word literally, I mean, literally, it literally means tabernacled. So when you're reading here that God's dwelling place, God's tabernacle, right? Well, Jesus is the tabernacle of God, right? He tabernacled among us. So if you want to know what beauty is, what preciousness is, it's the glory of God, right? It's in heaven, God is so bright with glory that angels cover their eyes, right? They cover their feet when they fly by him. Consider who God, who Christ is. He's the highest king, and yet he became the lowest servant. 
He's the most precious, infinitely value, infinitely valuable person, and yet Isaiah 53 says that when, when he became a man, there was nothing beautiful that we should desire him. So as a man, Jesus wasn't this beauty model. He was just a regular person. He wasn't even attractive, just a regular person. Yet as God, he is infinitely attractive, right? Jesus tabernacled among us in one person. He's both the lion and the lamb. He's God and man. He's high and low. He's majestic and he's meek. Hope you're seeing the theme here that the person of Jesus is what God says. That's glorious. That's, that's what you should look at. Look at Jesus, right? John Newton said this, When I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. So the question is, do you long for Christ? Do you long for this glory? Uh, do you desire heaven now? Maybe you don't. How do you cultivate a love for heaven? How do you cultivate a longing for heaven, right? I have three really simple ways that are helpful. Number one, you should think about Christ in heaven often. Uh, none of us should ever be able to say that our schedules are too busy that we can't read and think about Christ. We get that way. I understand that. I have hour by hour, I got to do certain things. I understand that. But may it never be so that we, I just don't have time to read today. May that never be true of us, that we don't have time to think about and read about the most excellent, the most worthy being, namely God. Like, like the approaching wedding day, you, you should always be thinking about it, right? I'm just, I'm, re I'm ready for it. I'm excited. That's what we should be thinking about with heaven, right? Number two, fighting your sin. Ironically, the more you fight your sin, uh, the longer, you, the, the more you're going to want to go to heaven. Isn't that true? You experience the times when you fall into sin. At some point, what do you think? I am so tired of doing this. I think there's a song that says this. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. So the, the more you fight your sin, the more you, man, I'm so tired of thinking like this or saying this or acting like this, it should automatically start to think, one day I'm going to be free from this. Oh, just if I fight more, one day there's going to be rest, right? And most of you guys know that rest is much better after a long day. That's how the Christian life is, right? And lastly, belong to a church. Our services are meant to be like a, a portable heaven, right? It should be the things we sing about, the things we're about, the things we look at and talk about. They should be heavenly, right? They should remind us of what heaven will be like. And our job is to form and reform um, our services to reflect more of what heaven cares about, which is namely Jesus, right? So, so to increase our longing for heaven, we should think more about it. Number two, the home of heaven. Look at verses three and four. So even the sparrow finds a home at your altar. So if you think of the tabernacle, it's built outside, right? It's not built like in a gymnasium. It's built outside, just like a building, Right? And naturally, there's going to be birds that are going to be close by, maybe in the trees. Uh, maybe they're even eating some of the crumbs on the ground from the showbread, right? We don't know what they're doing, but there's, there's birds that are nesting near uh, the temple. And the psalmist here is probably, he's probably not near, he's probably far away. So he's thinking, man, there's birds that are closer to God than I am. And what is he doing? I wish I could be a bird. I envy the birds. They're so close to the Lord. I wish I could be like the birds. They're they put their nest so close to where the tabernacle is. I wish I could be just like them. Uh, here the writer expresses that he belongs not on earth, but he belongs closer to God. Uh, heaven is his home. He doesn't feel permanence in life. He doesn't feel a de desire to nest here and to stay here. He knows that 
He desires to be with the Lord all of his day. Look at verse 4. Blessed, as I think most of the songs we've we've done in this series have always had the word blessed. Again, blessed means happy, right? Literally means happy. Happy are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So just as the bird dwells near and chirps his song, so too those who dwell near God often will often be found singing about him. Uh, There's no better resting place for our souls than to harbor them in God's presence. True happiness then is found being near to God and knowing God and dwelling with him and singing his praises. And happiness, as you guys know, is expressed mostly in singing. Oftentimes, if you're like me, when something good happens, what do you do? There's always maybe three or four songs that are permanently burned into your brain, good or otherwise, that you sing automatically when something good happens. Unfortunately, I have children that like songs about backhoes. So when good things happen, I whistle a song about a backhoe. I'll just, I do. I, I don't want to do it now because it's miserable, but I do that. Or about a crane truck. Sometimes I do whistle hymns, but why am I singing about this crane truck? Oh, yeah, because I'm happy because this song is stuck into my head. So we, we sing to express joy. It's what we do naturally, right? So the same with Christians. Christians are a singing people. We should be singing about the Lord from his book, right? So what we sing about here matters because what we sing about here is what we sing about in heaven, which is namely who Christ is. And, and don't miss the connection here. The closer one is to God, the more happy he is in life, in God, right? So a neglected Christian life will take a toll upon you. It is a guarantee. If you find yourself, I don't feel as close to the Lord, or I don't feel as happy as a Christian, it's probably because you're living pretty far away from him. They go hand in hand, right? It's like a hand in a glove. It's very simple. We don't skip meals on earth because we'd be starving, but we are more common to skip spiritual meals, and we wonder why we're just starving all the time. James chapter 4 has this amazing promise. It says this, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Simple math. If you draw near to him, you automatically experience intimacy with God, and that seems to be where we find the most happiness, right? That's such a promise. However, on earth, we face many trials in life. The book of James says that we're supposed to count it all joy. So you're supposed to be happy in God, as we just read. But James 1.3 says that you should count all things joyful. Even the, It says specifically about trials. So how can you count trials as joy? That doesn't make any sense. Well, what we need to remember is we're not supposed to to be focused on earth that much. God is actively, every day, if you're a believer, he's attempting to wean you off the world so you would stop loving the things of the world and look up, or we wouldn't just be, as it's been said before, navel gazers, always looking down, looking at work, looking at things on the ground, looking at family. Instead, God desires that you would look up. Look up, look up, look up, right? He's trying to wean you off the world. <clears throat> We shouldn't nest here very long because we're not going to be here very long, right? We get too comfy in the world. We shouldn't be that comfy. I like my couch. I like being comfy. But in the world, we shouldn't be comfy as Christians. We're not going to feel at home because it's not our home. Heaven is our home. Uh, George Whitfield, who was a preacher in the Great Awakening, said this. It's a quote I remember him thinking, hey, he said about that in a nest. So it came to mind when he said, he said this. I would often have settled down but God would not let me. He has always put a thorn in my nest. 
you think of a bird when they sit down and ow, a little thorn, they're going to always get up. They're not going to sit. They're going to just get up, right? That's God seems to do that with pain and with trials. He wants you to not be at ease. He wants you to get up, not to be comfy here in the world. So where do we belong? Maybe you're familiar with the words in John chapter 14. I think we often know them. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus says this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to, will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So how does Jesus prepare a place for us? Does it mean that, well, he's a carpenter, must know some good deals at Home Depot, he just makes one in heaven. Well, no, that's not what it means. What Jesus means to prepare a place, how does he prepare heaven for us? How do we get prepared to go? Well, the cross, right? Jesus prepares a place for you by laying his life down. The arrangements that are made for us to go are for Christ to go to the cross. So Jesus prepares the way by suffering and dying in our place. And by his so doing, he secures our entrance into heaven for us. Right? Heaven is prepared for us because Jesus died for us. And he says that he will gather us to himself. So he will come again. That's the second coming. Jesus will come again and he will bring us to himself. Jesus makes, therefore, all the preparations for sinners. So any sinner who says, well, I want to go. I want to see Christ. I want to go to heaven. You don't have to prepare anything. Jesus prepared the way, right? Because what does he say in verse 6? Well, what's the way to heaven? Well, Jesus said, I am the way. So he prepared the way by laying his life down for sinners, right? Jesus paid it all for those who had placed their faith and trust in Christ. Therefore, he is the way to the Father. So heaven will be the home of all those who love Christ and who are loved by him. Charles Spurgeon said this, that I shall never understand, even in heaven, why the Lord Jesus should ever have loved me. One of my favorite verses that Kelly was very fond of that I think of a lot, like in college she used to talk about or she had it somewhere. I used to always read it. And it's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. And it says this, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So we should therefore, as Christians, so when this morning when Chad mentions that church attendance is dwindling, Maybe the world looks like it's just getting even more evil. Christians, die. I, don't, I don't feel at home in the world anymore. I don't feel like I belong. I feel like there's a squeeze on Christians. How should you think? You should thank God for that. We don't belong here. It's right to feel out of place in the world. We should feel that we don't belong. Yes, while we're here, we should be faithful. But you should feel you don't belong because you don't. We, be, we belong to another world. We're an alien in a foreign land. I don't know if you guys, if your job has you go on uh, business trips. Um, I don't, and I'm glad because I don't like hotels ever. Actually, I like their breakfast. That's about it. You got a good breakfast, I will stay wherever you want. Uh, it could be under a tent. I don't care. But business trips... You go on business, and you're not there for your own sake. You're there for your, for your boss, and you're just staying somewhere just for a while. But, man, I'm ready to get out of here and go home and rest. Well, that's kind of how the Christian life is supposed to be thought. You're supposed to be thought of on earth. You're, you're really not about your own business. You're on a business trip. 
You really belong here for yourself. And just like a hotel, you don't get too comfy because you know you're going to check out soon. So on earth, realize that you are to be about the Lord's business on a business trip, so to speak, and that heaven is your home. Glory is your end. Here we have no lasting city, no lasting joy, no lasting bodies, no lasting life. But in heaven, all of those things are unending. And then the psalmist rightly says, Selah, which means rest. Think about it, right? Think about that. Number three, comfort from heaven. Look at verses five through eight. So um, Jesus, he, so what would he say in the book of Matthew? He would say, well, blessed are the, blessed are the, we call those the Beatitudes, right? This is almost like another Beatitude here. First in verse four, now in verse five. So blessed are those whose strength is in you. Now, if you look at verse seven, if you skip to verse seven, look at what the psalmist says here. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So some people who, some commentators think, that this likely refers to the fact that the person writing this probably isn't actually near the tabernacles. If you think of the temple, it was in one fixed place. It's not like America where we have churches every corner, every street, and every little nook and cranny. Uh, there was one place to gather. So if you live far away and you want to come visit, what do you have to do? Load up the old camel. Time to walk, right? Well, the Bible commands that you're supposed to actually go three times a year. So look at this, Exodus chapter 34 Verse 23 says this, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. So it doesn't matter where you lived. Um, your income is irrelevant. Um, you knew that at some point, as an Israelite, I'm going to be making a trip to the tabernacle three times. So I'm going to save up for it. I know it's coming. I'm going to be going. Uh, it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how close you were. You could be within a mile. You could be within 15 miles. You could have to walk through a whole desert. You could walk through nothing but green valleys and by the creeks. It doesn't matter. Some trips people took were easier. Some were harder. Some had more pain. Some had relatively easy paths. But the point is, is happy are those who endure on the journey, right? They put their strength, their hope, and trust in the Lord. So much so that verse 7 says they go from strength to to strength. So we, when they're putting their trust in the Lord, they're saying, okay, Lord, we're going. Uh, we know we need to go. And they increase in strength because they know where they're going. They're looking for, they're getting comfort just by putting their eyes upon it. Look at verse eight. This is a prayer. He's praying, oh God, hear, please hear this prayer. So he's praying that on his way to heaven, that or on his way to the tabernacle rather, that his strength would increase just by thinking about it. I know where I'm going. I'm thinking about it. On my way there, Lord, would you increase my strength so I can make it? So, because I got a long, I got a long stretch of land I got across. Would you strengthen me so I can make it? That's his prayer. In verse six, you probably have this interesting phrase: "In the valley of Baca." So, what is that? We don't really know. What we think, what a lot of commentaries, a lot of scholars think, is it's obviously a valley. Hence, the word "valley" in front of it. We don't really know where it's at. We, some people think it's referring to Joshua chapter 7 where the sin of Achan and his whole family, they, he hid some stuff and they were all punished in a valley. Some people think it's a valley in, in the book of 2 Samuel where David fought in the Philistines. We don't really know. But oftentimes valleys are meant to signify 
uh, sorrow, right? Because they're down below. You're lowly. It's dark. It's not exactly safe. It's dangerous, right? That's what it's meant to be like. And the word for baka, the Hebrew word, is what we, we get the word in Hebrew from uh, for weeping. So it actually refers to the valley of weeping, the valley of sorrow. And like a valley, those who travel through this valley experience great dread, sorrow, and are devoid of life. But look at what they do as they pass through this valley, this dryness, this sorrow. What does the valley turn into? It turns into a place of springs, right? The early rain also covers it with pools. So why is that? How come they can pass through a miserable land, and yet it's better as they go? It's, well, to me, it's pretty good. It's like a spring. But it's a valley. It's pretty great. Why is that? Seems to be that the psalmist has heaven in his heart before he even gets to the tabernacle. He already he has the Lord's glory. He's fixed upon it. He knows. He has his eyes set on it before he even gets there. And it increases him from strength to strength. And all of us, likewise, are on a pilgrimage to heaven. Christians, all of us who are Christians, are trekking our way through the wilderness, through valleys, and through the world. And as you know, you have believers who are friends, who are family. Some of them reach heaven much faster than you do. Some at an older age, some at a younger age. Some of their lives are much easier. They have very little pain. Their walk through the valley is like skipping through a meadow. It's pretty easy. But maybe your valley is very, very, it's a valley. It's, this is a real big valley. It's hard. It's a long journey. <clears throat> some have ease. Some have much pain. But what sustains you on your journey to heaven? Well, the psalmist says here, God is our strength, Right? We look to him, so we, we are sustained to him because we are looking, we are banking our life on what he said, and we are strengthened to walk in the way. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, there's two words I want you to hear that I'm going to emphasize very clearly so you hear them. Looking to Jesus, in verse 3 it says, to consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we're told to Fix our eyes to consider Christ. I don't know if you guys play baseball as a kid or if you have to teach someone baseball. But one of the main things you teach someone in baseball primarily is the main rule, especially when you're batting, but also when you're playing the field, is keep your eye on the ball. Every grounder, watch the ball into the glove. Every time you swing, throw your hands at the ball. Watch the ball. If you do that, you're going to hit well. You're going to field well, right? When, when, when you have a pop fly, don't look out for the flowers. Look towards the ball, right? Avoid the, just look at the ball, right? Likewise, in the Christian life, you are told simply to keep your eyes on Christ. Look to him, to consider him. Don't be distracted by everything else, but to look to Christ. And you'll find that your strength goes from strength to strength, right? And therefore, Christians will have their hearts in heaven before we even get there. I feel like I'm already there because I'm just, I'm so fixated and enthralled by who he is that I feel like I'm already there. And by doing so, you're given strength to persevere your days to heaven. Many of us on earth will walk through valleys of weeping in the Christian life. Many clouds, you will have a parched land, it seems like. When you put your strength or trust in the Lord, you're supposed to walk by faith. 
We shall make even the deserts will become pools, clouds will become filled with showers of blessings, as we sang today. The Christian life is a paradox, isn't it? It's very strange that your dark days are often your best days. Isn't that peculiar? Um, the hardest times I've been through have often been the times where I've grown the most. Uh, the frustrating times are when I learn more about myself and more about Christ and more about how much I need him. It just seems to be how it works. The darker the sky, the brighter the stars. And that's how God's purposes seem to be. The Bible says there's nothing more precious than an enduring faith, a faith that rests upon Christ, the first Peter says. Therefore, if heaven is in your hearts, even the dark night of the soul will water and grow your faith. Uh, one writer named Thomas Brooks writes this. A gracious soul may look through the darkest cloud and see God smiling on him. So picture, um, I don't know how to really drive a boat. I guess I could figure it out. But picture you're going through um, the dark seas, and it's just dark. And when you're looking for the land, what do you look for? Well, it's a lighthouse. Cool. I know where I'm going. And you, you, you know this trip. You make this harbor every whatever. You know this trip. You know the seas. You know lighthouse is right there. And you look for it, and you see the lighthouse. However, when storms happen, and it's cloudy, and it's crazy... You have a radar, I believe, and you know where that lighthouse is. You can't see it. Oh, I know it's there. I just can't see it, but I know that it's there. So you, you almost look through. I, I, know it, I, I know that it's there. I see. I know it's there, but you can't, right? You see through the unseen, because, and you press on for what you know exists. This is what Christians call, the Bible says, walking by faith. It means believing, ironically, Ironically, it means believing what you can't see and disbelieving what you do see. I think last Sunday I mentioned that your eyes are poor interpreters of truth. They lie to you all the time. It's just not what it looks like. Things are not what they see. So this requires, therefore, that we preach to ourselves. Oftentimes we listen to ourselves all the time, and we're good at that. Bible says you actually need to preach to yourself. You need to tell yourself what to believe because you don't often think the way we ought, myself included. So ironically, or not ironically, interestingly, in the Christian life, how do you see Christ better? Is it through your eyes? It's not. You see Christ through your ears, don't you? When you hear the word of God, your faith, your sight increases. Isn't that how it works? How else do you grow in faith? You just walk around thinking, you hope you do? No, you hear, right? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans chapter 10. So how do you walk by faith when you, well, it's not, it's not the way that it looks. What should I preach to myself? Here's three passages that when I have these moments, these are the ones that almost automatically come to mind, especially the first two, uh, the third one a little bit, but definitely the first one. These are things you need to tell yourself when you walk through a valley and you can't see the lighthouse, this is what you tell yourself. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider, he's believing what he can't see, he's counting, right? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I know what I see, it's not as, it's not as good as what I can't see now. It's paradoxical, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know, even though I can't see it, I know it. That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This doesn't look good. God, this is bad news. 
doesn't matter how it looks. If you know by faith, you know, you count it, right? What I know, right? And lastly, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So it's not what you see, it's what you know. And when you, what you know and see don't match up, what do you believe? Don't believe what you see, believe what you know. That's how you walk by faith. Then Selah, so think about it again. Lastly, verses 9 through 12, the supremacy of heaven. So what is the obvious conclusion that I hope you're gaining from this? Compared to earth, heaven is a lot better. That's, duh, thanks, Kale. I'm glad we came to church. Very simple. That's the point, right? The psalm is saying it, it's better. Why do I want to be here? It's better, right? There's a famous question that John Piper once asked that I want you to hear. I want you to listen to very carefully because I think it's very, very Again, you're going to say either amen or ouch. And I hope that you will say probably both, as I do. So John Piper asked this question. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all your friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, with no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there. See, the earth has all those things. It can offer a lot of those things. It can offer friends, good health, good food, fun, laughter. I, I'm not against those things, neither is God. But they don't have Christ. And Christ is our treasure. He's our heaven. Heaven is Christ-centered. Look at verses 9 and 10. He pleads for God to simply just look at him. Just please look to me, right? Just a glimpse of God will scatter all my fears, all these lesser things. Uh, it's called tunnel vision, right? When you just stare at something, you don't see anything else on the side. We're meant to, we're meant to have tunnel vision for Christ and just be fixated on him. Because he is everlasting pleasure, joy, unending happiness, beauty, and altogether lovely. Look at verse 10. A day in your courts is better than a thousand. So that's the song, Better is One Day, that I think I've been singing every single day of this week, which is a good song, apart from the backhoe song I mentioned earlier. I've been singing that one too. Proverbs 15, verse 16 says this, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So to have Christ is gain. To lose anything and to have Christ is gain. It's better to be scorned for being a Christian than to lie and be liked. It's better to be forgotten by the world because you treasure Christ than, than the reverse. It's better to be a Christian prisoner than an entitled traitor. It's better to be beheaded like John the Baptist for faithfulness than be a turncoat like Judas. It's better to be slain with the apostles than decorated like Caesar. That's the point. And that's hard because we don't believe those things. Our eyes don't see it. So you need to tell yourself these things. In heaven, no one wishes they can come back to earth. Did you know that? None of them want to come back. And I'm glad they don't. I want to go and not come back to. <laughs> Jesus is, the verse 11, he's the sun in our orbit. He's our shield in battle. This is why unbelievers, sadly, they waste their lives. There's a way to waste your life, and it's to get all the things you want and to die and go to hell. It's a wasted life. Christ is better. Everything else is a cheap joy. 
So God offered up his son to bridge the gap for us to see and to know glory forever and ever and ever. You're meant to see glory, the same glory that God delights in, namely his son. Jesus delights in his father. The spirit highlights the son by the will of the father. You're meant to see the glorious, glorious, glorious Trinity for the rest of your life. As we close, look at verse 11 and 12. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Everything you need on earth to get to heaven, you will get. Everything you don't need on earth to get to heaven, you will not get. God only sends and takes from you what is good that you will make it to the end. No good does, does he withhold. If, if it's not good for you to get to heaven, he won't give it to you. If you think you need it and he takes it, it's because you don't actually need it to get to heaven. John Newton said this, Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. So may God arrange your heart to treasure him, to look to him, to think of heaven more, and to long for Christ. I want to close with a, a line from this hymn that says this, I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let's pray.